adds no sorrow to it. But yeah, that's what he was, he was digging through the, the recesses of his mind. <laughs> good stuff. Well, you guys doing good? Had a good time with the Lord. Let's, uh, let's keep pressing in, pressing into his word. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, we, we started in the book of Ephesians last week, just really pressing into what does it mean to be the church? What does it mean to be a family on mission is one of the ways that we're uh, kind of one of the aspects of being the church that we're focusing on. And, and so this is our, our series that the Lord really is wanting to stir up our faith and he's really wanting to bring a, a tighter community, bring us into uh, deeper intimacy with one another, greater unity, and just having a tighter community here. And the Lord wants us to see who we are as the church from the Word of God. And I told you last week that if you're, if you're going to talk about the church, you can't not go to the book of Ephesians. You know, like if you're, if you're going to study what the church is or who we are in the Word of God, you're going to end up looking at the book of Ephesians. And so that's what the Lord's spoke to me about, that we would turn and look at this book, uh, this letter called Ephesians. And last week, if you were here, you remember that I talked about the fact that we as the church are the fullness of Jesus on the earth, right? That Jesus is the fullness of God, that Jesus is the one who fills everything in every way, which means he has all authority in heaven and earth. Everything is under his feet. But the Bible says that we as his church, as the body of Christ, are the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. That we are Jesus' fullness, which means that we represent him. That we are salt to the decay of this world. We are the light to darkness. And so that, so that when, when, when we, we said last week that if there's darkness in, in the neighborhood, if there's darkness in this world, well, why is it there? Well, we know it's there because of sin and demonic uh, uh, oppression, but we would say that now that the church, now that we're born again, now that we are his glory, we're filled with his glory, if we were to say, man, why, why is there darkness over there in that neighborhood? The answer is because we're not there. Because if there's decay in meat, it's because either there's no salt on it or because the salt has lost its saltiness. So Jesus said, and so we want to be the people God has called us to be. We want to be the salt and the light that the Lord has called us to be. Because obviously Jesus told us that parable about salt because you can lose your saltiness, can't you? And he said, what good is a lamp if it's hiding under a basket? Why? Because you could do that if you wanted to. And so we need to be people who are salt and light and we need to go into neighborhoods. And I said last week that when we walk into a neighborhood, when you walk into a person's life who doesn't know the Lord or who's struggling with something, everything changes. Amen? That was a good place for an amen. Amen. When you walk into an environment that had darkness or decay or brokenness or sin or somebody wasn't saved and you step into their life, everything changes. I want to hear another amen. Amen. Come on, see, that's what I'm saying. That's right. I'm not sure what that meant. (laughs) What I mean is... We are the salt and the light. And when you walk into a place, somebody doesn't know the Lord, let's say, and you become friends with them, everything changes. And we need to understand our authority in the name of Jesus. We need to understand our responsibility to be that salt and light. So that when I walk into a neighborhood darkness there, I go, you ain't allowed to be here anymore because there's a new law in town. I'm a citizen of heaven. I'm a son of the king. The Holy Spirit is upon me, and the Bible says in the name of Jesus, you can tell that stuff to go. 
And if somebody doesn't know the Lord, we can pray for them in the name of Jesus. We can bind demonic powers that would blind their minds. We can open their hearts. We can't make them get saved because that's their choice. But we can deal with those demonic things and other, other things that are spiritual that are hindering them or, or whatnot, right? So we step into an area of poverty and we become the solution to that, right? Not only through acts of justice, but through the preaching of the gospel and all that. And what we're looking at is how to be that salt and light. How is it that we can take responsibility to walk in the authority we have to be the church, to be the salt, to be the light? It all begins with being a family on mission to really reclaim and understand who we are as the church. So Father, I pray you'd release this revelation. I pray for faith today, faith to believe this, that we would not receive this word on hard soil, but good soil. We'd receive this, and I pray that we would receive this word, uh, and we'd bear fruit a hundredfold, 30, 60, but even up to a hundredfold, I pray today, that this word would produce in our life. And so, Lord, give us ears to hear. In Jesus' name, amen? All right, ears to hear. So, Last week I said that we're the fullness of Jesus. That was in Ephesians chapter 1. Today I want to talk to you about something else here, starting in verse 14. Ephesians 2, verse 14. Ephesians 2, verse 14. Listen to this. For he himself, referring to Jesus, for he himself is our peace. He himself is our peace. You know, the moment you read that, usually people take things out of context they, they kind of just, oh, that's cool. Jesus is my peace. He makes me feel at peace and at rest. Well, amen, he does. But that's not what it's talking about. We've got to keep reading, and we've got to read the Bible in context to understand when it says that he's our peace, it's referring to something way more dynamic than, I just feel at rest inside my soul. Amen, we get that too. That's, that, but that would be a different verse. Right here, it says verse 14, For he himself is our peace, who has made both one. And has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. And that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were afar off and to those who were near. For through him, we both have access by one spirit to the Father. What kind of peace is he talking about? Is he talking about personal, individualistic, in my emotions peace? No. Although, thank you, Lord, for that. He's talking about the reconciliation of two enemies, isn't he? There was a lot of words in here that were kind of like, what? You know? <laughs> But if you just read it, you see that he is our peace. Well, how is he our peace? Because he has made both one. Well, who, who is he talking about? Who is Paul talking about in this letter? He's talking about Jews and Gentiles. He's talking about the fact that in the early church, Paul was seeing people saved, and some of them were Jewish. Some of them were already part of the, the covenant of God, the descendants of Abraham. Now, they needed to be saved just like everyone else, right? We're all sinners, uh, and, and all have fallen short of the glory of God, and, and all are saved by grace through faith, right? And so we all need the grace of God, but these Jewish people, they had already been a part of the 
covenant promises of God. And yet Gentiles, Gentiles just means everyone else is not Jewish. Uh, the Gentiles, they didn't, hadn't received those covenants. They hadn't received those promises. They hadn't received those things that God wanted to do. Does that mean God loved us less, those of us who are Gentiles? No, 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 no. It was always God's design that through Abraham and the descendant of Abraham, that God would bring blessing to all the nations, right? But Paul is talking to a people, you've got to understand, Paul is talking to a people that are completely different from each other. That thing's making a lot of noise. We might, have, uh, we might need to just turn that off. Yeah, maybe we should just turn that off because that's just going to bother me. Uh, <laughs> I can handle like a crying baby, but I don't know about that fan. <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> Man. All right. So anyways, okay. So he's talking about two different types of people becoming one. The Jews and the Gentiles, they were completely different from each other. Ethnically different, socially different. They ate different kinds of foods. They didn't like each other. They hated each other. You know, I'm telling you, it was completely, completely different. So can you imagine that you get saved and you're like, you live, you, you don't eat even the same foods, right? As, as this other person, you get saved, another person gets saved and you're totally different, right? You were raised in the church, this other person didn't. You know, you eat certain kinds of foods. They eat the foods that you think are like wicked. You know what I'm saying? Like they don't eat pig, you eat pig. You know, they eat pig, they make you want to throw up. Like, can you imagine, can you imagine all your life you were a Jewish person, a good Jewish person, and you weren't even supposed to go into the home of a Gentile, not even supposed to eat with them, and now you're both Christ followers. So we're not talking about just a little bit of like personality differences. We're talking about one of the greatest differences that divided people ever, the Jews and the Gentiles. And yet we have this kind of social barriers today, don't we? There's all kinds of social barriers, aren't there? Economic barriers, social barriers, political barriers. <clears throat> Something about elephants and donkeys and stuff, but I don't know. Uh, there's ethnic barriers, there's pride, there's judging, there's prejudice, there's fear. They're different from me, right? There's different personalities. All that kind of stuff, right, is are social barriers that keep people separated, isn't, don't, don't they? And cause us to feel, oh no, maybe they won't like me, and fear their rejection. Did anyone go to junior high? Some of you were homeschooled, but most of you went to junior high. Yes, social barriers, fear of rejection, awkwardness, gossip, right? <laughs> A lot of us were raised in the world where we went to schools and we were in environments, some of you even in workplaces, where that kind of relationship is common, isn't it? Backbiting, gossip, you know, anger, division, all that kind of stuff. And, and, and all of that is what the Bible calls the work of the flesh, right? And so Paul is saying here for the Jews and the Gentiles, but he's talking about something way more profound than even just some sort of cultural issue of Jews and Gentiles. He's talking about who we are as the church, who are we as the church? He says this, for he himself is our peace, he has made both one. So Jews and Gentiles, the Bible says that now in Christ, there's neither Jew nor Gentile. The ethnic differences, the social differences, the racial differences, the economic differences, those don't matter anymore. We're all one in Christ, right? There's neither Jew nor Gentile nor slave nor free. Slave nor free was a huge economic barrier in their, in their day. He says, but we're all one in Christ. There's neither male nor female major gender differences in the way that people looked at those genders, right? Galatians chapter three, we're all one 
in Christ. And so he says, for he is our peace who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation. And there's a lot of metaphors here, but bottom line is to focus on that word separation. That because of those differences, it separated us from being in relationship. It separated us from being in unity. And now he says that Jesus at the cross has broken down that wall of separation. You notice that? He's broken down that wall of separation. See, peace actually is violent against things like disunity, isn't it? Right? He destroyed the thing that was dividing to bring us into wholeness or peace or reconciliation. So he broke down that middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity. What does that mean? Abolished in his flesh. It's referring to the cross. And you see it a little bit later when he says in verse 16, through the cross, right? Reconciling them both to God in one body through the cross. So he says it two different ways, but he says in his flesh, he literally took upon himself what's called the enmity. What what is that? That's a big word for being enemies. Hatred. I don't like you. You don't like me. So he literally took that thing, that dislike for one another, that fear, that enmity, that hatred, that distrust, that dislike. He took that, that was keeping people separated, and he literally took it on himself at the cross. See, Jesus didn't just die for your sin, your individualistic, personal sin. Jesus' goal at the cross wasn't just to reconcile you to God. It wasn't just to reconcile you personally and individualistically to a personal relationship with God. Was it to do that? Amen. Yeah, of course it was. He took your sin. You were literally created for Jesus. You are his daily delight. He loves you. He bought you with his blood and he has reconciled you to God and you belong to God. You, if you've put your trust in Jesus, you have a personal relationship with God. Praise God, that's good stuff. But doesn't that take faith to believe that? Isn't that why we, we, we preach the word, right? Because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. Doesn't it take faith to believe that all your sin is forgiven? I sure didn't believe that when I was... Uh, uh, when I wasn't saved and somebody was preaching the gospel to me, I was like, I don't know about that. I mean, I know he died, but man, I, you know, come on. I'm still a sinner. But until you hear the gospel, you, you can't believe because it's just too good to be true, right? That this God who is perfect and righteous would bear my sin and then give me his righteousness, right? For he, him, for he became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Now, how... Many of you, you don't have to show it by hands, but many of you, you didn't believe that or believe the extent of that until you started coming to our church or until you started going to discipleship program at our church, right? Operation Salt Lives. Many of you, I know, many of you struggle with shame and condemnation. Many of you have told me you weren't really sure if you were really saved or not going to go to heaven. Many of you, many of you might say, oh no, I know God loves me. I know, I know I'm forgiven. But you didn't really walk in the reality of that until you pressed into the word of God and began to stand in faith in that, right? It takes faith, doesn't it? Do you agree with me? Right? When I was, years and years ago, I didn't believe it until I heard the gospel, then I believed it. And you know, even then, it's kind of tough to walk in that reality, right? It takes faith to believe that what Jesus said he would do, right? The promise of God, that he's accomplished actually with his blood at the cross. 
So here's the reality. Many of us already know this. I'm just kind of, you know, tagging on to this. That he became sin for us, that we might become the righteous of God in Christ Jesus. You, if you're in Christ, if you put your trust in Jesus, you're a new creation. By the blood of Jesus, all your sin is forgiven. You're right with God. And look, look, look at what he says here. He's saying that this Jesus is our peace. That he's broken down the wall of separation, having abolished in his own flesh the enmity, that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, referring to the Old Testament law, that we could never please God, but it also brought division between us and Jewish people, right? Don't eat this, don't do that, don't do that. It brought this division. And Paul is saying that in Jesus' flesh, Jesus destroyed those laws that would keep us separated. Jesus destroyed that enmity and that separation literally at the cross. And listen to what he says in verse 15. So as to, so as to, that means he's talking about the purpose. Why did he take the enmity on the cross? Why did he die for our sins? So that you could be forgiven, right? We say that. Why did he die? So you could be forgiven. Why did he die? So you could be reconciled to God. But here's another purpose. We're going to see something here about the gospel that I don't think many of us have ever really seen or believed. This is the full gospel. This is the gospel of the kingdom. That's not just about me being personally reconciled to God, but listen to it. He did that. He took the enmity on the cross, right? He shed his blood, and it says, so as to create, so as to create in himself one new man. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm a new creation. He's not talking about you individually. So as to create one new man from the two. From the two what? From the two different ethnicities. Thus making peace. What does it mean that he's our peace? What does it mean that Jesus has made peace? It means this. That not only did he die for your sin that would separate you from God, he died for your sin that would separate you from others. Jesus did not die just to reconcile you to God, although he did do that. He died to reconcile you to others. The cross is not just about an intimate personal relationship with Jesus. It actually is. He literally died, shed his blood for this purpose that the church would be one in him. That's insane. That's just as insane as the first time I heard, you're the righteousness of God. What? Get out of here. And as equally true as it is that I have been born again by the Spirit, my spirit has been resurrected and there's no sin in my spirit. So equally so, you and I and we are one in Christ. And there is no wall separating us because he's broken it down. He destroyed it at the cross. Now, if you're a good skeptic like me, and you hear that you're righteous in Christ, you say, ah, 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 well, but I still sin. How can I be righteous if I still sin? And haven't we been growing this as a, in a, as a church for, for years now? That we're becoming who we already are, right? That in your spirit, you're righteous, but it's called the sanctification process, right? Paul used the word sanctification, that you're becoming who you already are. You're righteous in Christ, And so we know as believers that we're not trying to earn something. We're not trying to work it up, right? We're not trying to become something that we're not. We're not working from a negative. We're actually working from an abundance. 
That God has given us this abundant grace where sin abounds grace all the more. And this grace means this empowerment to actually be the people we were called to be. You're dead to sin. You're alive to God. And the, literally the righteousness of Christ in you is producing his righteousness through you, right? His character being formed in your life. And so it's this grace that's been poured out. We're living in, a, in response to this finished work of the cross, aren't we? He's already paid the price. He died one time. He's not dying again, is he? He doesn't have to die, keep dying a bunch of times for your sin. You're already forgiven. And so, of course, we struggle when we fall down, but we know, those of us who understand the scriptures, we know that we're becoming like Jesus in whom we already are righteous, right? We're becoming who we already are. Well, guess what? It's the same thing with the church. Somebody would say, well, how can you say that we're one when there's so much disunity in the church? How can you say that we're one when we just stink at relationships? I'd say, yeah, 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 we do stink at relationships, don't we? I call it the last frontier of the Christian life, you know? You can get all fervent for Jesus and move in the spiritual gifts and be all hardcore for Jesus and believe God. And then come home to your wife and be a jerk. And have unresolved issues from your past that you haven't really dealt with because you treat your family like your old family did, treated each other, instead of learning the new way of the kingdom. Well, yeah, it, doesn't, it shouldn't surprise us that Jesus paid for our oneness, but we've got to walk it out by his grace. And if you don't believe that this is part of the gospel, then you won't walk in it, will you? And so we don't try to attain to unity or work out unity because, you know, it's a good thing to do. We do it because we're already one. Does that make sense? We actually are becoming who we already are. Every time that you love or serve one another and you walk in unity and you decide to do something that would undermine disunity, division, gossip, hatred or anger or whatever, every time you accept somebody that's different from you, every time you press in to a relationship that's awkward or uncomfortable because they're just not like you, all you're doing is walking out what Jesus has already paid for in the power of his grace. What I want you to understand is that we are already one in Christ. That it says here that he is literally created in himself. That's a pretty strong word, created Right? The Bible says you're a new creation. There's been a resurrection on the inside of you. Corporately speaking, every person who puts their trust in Jesus comes into Christ and he creates us into this person. He created a new humanity, a new person in Christ. And then it says that he actually took this one person, this one new man, thus making peace, and it says that he might reconcile them both to God. Your reconciliation to God can never be separated from your reconciliation to others around you. Your relationship to God and your relationship with others cannot be separated. What God wants to do in you and your relationship with him cannot be separated from what he wants to do in you in your relationship with others. He never saw them as two separate things. We do. We're like, oh, we love God, but we don't really love his people. We're Christians, but we don't, we don't do the church thing. It's crazy the way people talk out there. It's crazy the kind of thinking and human tradition that has invaded the church, right? People will say things like, well, I'm, you know, I'm a Christian, 
And so, you know, the church isn't like a building. The church is people. So, like, I'm the church. So I don't have to, like, go to church because I am the church. You ever heard that one? I don't have to go to church because I am the church. That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. I don't have to go to church because I am the church. You're not the church. We're the church. We're the church. You can't be church by yourself. Oh, but I, I, watch, the, I watch the preaching on TV. What? I, which I actually I like. I mean, I like the preaching on TV, but that's someone's church? There's no relationship there. There's no fellowship. There's no connectedness. You, you know, you guys know me because I, I love this joke. It's one of my favorite jokes. I say it all the time. There's two things it's impossible to do by yourself. Be married and be the church. It's impossible. It's a collective thing. You can't marry yourself. That's just the weirdest thing in the world, right? Hey, what's that ring on your finger? Oh, I'm married. To who? I married myself. That's weird, right? That's just freaky, okay? And yet when people say things like, oh, I'm the church, I don't have to go to church, that's how weird it is. That's how incongruent with reality it really is. And they obviously don't understand the gospel. Do you know that the word church literally means the assembly, the gathering? Did you know that? Ekklesia, the word church, comes from the Greek word ekklesia. And the word ekklesia is used in, 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 uh, uh, in Greek culture. It was referring to citizens who had the rights of membership, right? They, they were citizens of a particular city-state. They had membership because of, of whatever, certain membership requirements. And it was literally referring to their gathering to make decisions, Who are we? We are Jesus' ecclesia. We are citizens of heaven. Each of us has been born again. We've come into the kingdom. And what do we do? We gather. And what did he say? In my name. If two or more of you gather in my name and agree on anything, it will be done for you. We're a family on mission. We are, we are the ones who've been called out of, this, of, of the darkness of this world, the bondage and the wickedness of this world, to be, come into Christ, have our sins forgiven, reconciled to God, and having been reconciled to God, we belong to one another. We don't just belong to God. We literally belong to one another. I belong to you and you belong to me. And we were literally gathered together. Jesus gathered us together. That we together would gather and make decisions to be salt and light, to be a family on mission. That's what it means. You literally, you can't say things like, well, we are the church, so we don't have to go to church. It's an incongruent statement. When you say, I am the church, let's even say, we are the church. We are the gathering. And so you can't be the gathering without gathering. And I don't just mean going to a church service, an event, or a presentation. I'm talking about gathering as the citizens of heaven on earth to represent Jesus as it is in heaven, on earth as it is in heaven, being his salt and his light. Listen to me, you cannot, and I know some of you know this and you walk in this, that's why you're here, but this is the gospel. We're not the only ones who need to hear this, amen? 
But listen to me, you can't obey God without the church. You cannot obey what the scriptures say to do without relationship with other people. Interesting, isn't it? Do you know you cannot even fulfill your calling without being, gathering with the church. See, you guys know that the church is not a building, praise God. The church is not a time slot. The church is not an event. The church is people, but people gather. And actually, the word is used at times. At times, the, it's, at times we, the, the church is talked about as a people, and other times it's actually talked about as the gathering. Paul actually will say, when you come together as church or as the church. He actually uses different words to describe the gathering of believers. When Paul is talking here, people like to go, oh, well, he's talking about the universal church. He's talking about like the invisible universal church. No, he's not. He's, he's talking about the Ephesians. He's talking about Christians who gathered in a city called Ephesus. You cannot be a part of the universal church and not be a part of the local church. And of course, if you put your trust in Jesus... You can't not be a part of the universal church, too. I'm not saying that there is, you know, people, I don't even know why people make that distinction. To be honest, theologians, they came up with that years ago, the local church and the universal church. I don't even know why we do that. Do you know what's in Paul's mind when he's talking about oneness right here? He's not talking about, like, Baptist and Pentecostal. He's not even thinking like that, is he? They even had that. He's just talking about this gathering of believers. So I'm not, gonna, I'm, I'm, I'm not, I'm not here to say, Oh, well, you know, yeah, that's right, Dave. Yeah, that's right. The church needs to work together. All these denominations. I'm not talking about that. Paul was not talking about that. Although, praise God, that might be an implication that denominations would accept and love one another. That's all good and fine and dandy. But, you know, I think we should just work on it right here. Amen? We can't even... We need to get along right here. We need to go deep in intimacy here. Walk in humility and serving and caring and loving for one another. Here, that's what Paul's talking about. That's what Jesus was wanting. Not like some ambiguous ecumenical movement that has nothing to do with the way I live every single day. I would love for there to be unity across churches and denominations in our city. And for the most part, I know a number of pastors and we like each other. In fact, I do outreach with one pastor from Church in New Song. Praise God. There's unity. Hallelujah. Whatever. I think what the Lord wants is for this to actually manifest in the way we relate to one another. All you have to do is read Ephesians and you can see he's talking about the way we live together. So what am I trying to say? Not only have you been reconciled to God, you've been reconciled to one another. Not only do you belong to God, you belong to one another. You and I are literally one. One in Christ. Just like you're one with Jesus, you are one together. Isn't that amazing? The fact that when you are adopted by the Father, you come into a family, and now you have brothers and sisters, and you literally belong to one another. Look at this verse in, uh, in uh, chapter 4. In chapter 4, he's talking about how to walk this out. In fact, in verse 1, he says, Therefore, the prisoner of the Lord beseech you, I beseech you, to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. Oh, amen, I got a calling. I got a personal calling. Hallelujah, Amen. Yes, you do have a calling. You were called to be like Jesus and to partner with Jesus and do the works that God created in advance for you to do. I mean, right, I could go on and on about that. But notice what it says right here. Walk worthy of the calling with which you have called. Verse 2, with all lowliness, gentleness, 
with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love. How do you obey that command by yourself? Well, I chewed. I put up with myself. (laughs) You know, I'm sure some people, you're just enough for you to handle. (laughs) You cannot obey these commands of love. You cannot walk out love without others. You cannot fulfill your calling. It says right here, walk worthy of your calling, which you've been called in this way. It all begins with this community. It all begins with being the family, the community that God has called us to be as the church. And it's in the context of the believers gathering together and loving and serving one another and being church, right? Doing church, being church, whatever you want to say, it's in that context that we actually begin to fulfill our individual calling But it's really a collective thing, isn't it? It's to live the life of Christ, to be salt and light to the community. But we cannot fulfill our calling without each other. Of course, we can't do it without Jesus. That's obvious. But we cannot do it without each other. And we can't even obey the word of God without each other. And so look, he keeps going in chapter 4. We'll look at chapter 4 a little bit more later. But right here at the bottom of chapter 4, verse 25. Look at verse 25. He's going to talk about some simple ways to live, right? Therefore, putting away lying, lying, let each of you, each one of you speak truth with his neighbor. And listen to why. For we are members of one another. Woo, that should send goosebumps up our, up our spines if we really believe that. Did you, did you hear what he just said? Hey, stop lying. Stop lying. No, brother, I'm doing just fine, brother. I'm doing just fine. Everything's just fine. Liar, right? Like, right? And then gossip behind their back because you're really mad at them but you didn't want to tell it to their face, right? So lying, okay? He says, don't lie. He says, don't lie. Why? Because you belong to one another. You're members of one another. No, 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 no. You don't understand, Dave. We're members of the body of Christ. So like we're all connected to Jesus. He's the head. But we're like disconnected from one another. That's how people want to think, don't they? I need Jesus. You don't understand? I need Jesus. No, you need each other. That's what he's saying. He literally says in chapter 4, just a minute, uh, 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 a couple sentences before, that literally uh, that we grow together into the head, verse 16, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by every joint, from what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. How does the body grow? Oh man, we just need to be connected to the head. Well, amen. If you're not connected to Jesus, you're not even part of the church. And if a church is disconnected from the head, not going to produce any fruit. But when a church is walking in the spirit and we're connected to Jesus, our Lord, he is the Lord. He's the head of the church. We're all one, but we're one in him. It says that we're members of one another. And it literally says that it's as everybody does their share, we actually grow. We grow because of one another. We need each other. We are really a family. We are really brothers and sisters. This is not pretend. This is not make-believe. This is not, well, spiritually speaking. No, literally, we are blood-related. Huh? The blood of Jesus, thank you very much, by the covenant that he made with us, by his very own blood. We are not only sons of God, we're brothers and sisters. We belong to one another. We're literally in Christ, and because we're one in him, 
We're one together. Wow, that's insane, isn't it? See, the question really is very simple then. How do we live then? What do you do with that kind of truth? That's what Paul is doing right here. That's what Paul's saying. He's saying, you guys, this is what Jesus has done for us. Now walk in that. So literally, what, think about that just for a second. Wow. We look around you. So you're my brother or my sister? We're one? Wait, I belong to you? You belong to me? Like we're members of one another? That sounds kind of a little bit too intimate, Dave. Oneness? I mean, isn't that kind of like how the way we talk about marriage? Uh Uh-huh. Because that's the way we talk about family. It's family. Really family. Really family. So how would you treat your family? And you know, the way that the Lord has designed the church is that we would be the new family of God and we would transform family. We're really supposed to be a family as the church. And then we're supposed to live out what it looks like to be family so that fathers and mothers and sons and daughters will actually have the healthy kind of relations that Jesus desires. Think about it, right? The, at the fall, at the fall, when Adam and Eve, they sinned and they were separated from God, was it just the relation with God that was destroyed? No, of course not. All sin and injustice in this world is because of selfishness and greed, right? Covetedness, the love of money, I want to be rich more than I want you to be blessed, right? That kind of thing, yes? When the fall happened and we sinned, it destroyed our relationships, right? Adam and Eve started blaming one another. They felt shame. They're covering themselves up with sticky fig leaves. And don't you remember what the, who the first murder was committed by? A brother. A brother killed another brother out of jealousy, self-righteous guilt, right? Oh, God likes you more than me envy and he killed his brother do you see what sin did you can just look at the very beginning of genesis i can walk you through the whole bible and show you obviously you get it already that this world the sin has corrupted our relationships and so of course what would jesus do to redeem this world what's the longing of your heart isn't it to be loved and to be known What's the longing of your heart? Where did you get your greatest wounds from, most of us? Family. Sometimes the church, often. Because it's like a family. What do you think the enemy tries to do? Other than, you know, put shame and guilt on Christians who will walk in sin. He separates and divides. Keeps the army apart, right? Keeps the army weak. What could we do if we were united in the Lord? And what would the world say and what would the world do if they saw us love one another? What would the world do and the world say if we were one, just like Jesus and the Father are one, right? Do you see that this is the dream that's on Jesus' heart? In John 17, he prayed, Father, that they would be one. You and I are one. And then he actually says, that the world may know that you sent me. That's a cry of his heart. That's his vision. He didn't say, oh, Lord, thank you that I, I saved them, and I pray they just get along. Did he pray that? I just pray that they, like, go to church. No, he didn't say that. He said, oh, that they would be one as the Father and the Son are one. 
The cry of Jesus is the kind of unity and the kind of love and deep, intimate relationship that the Father and the Son actually share together. That's intense. And he said that it's when the church walks in unity like that, or I would say any local gathering of believers, when, the, when they, we would love one another and we'd walk in a oneness like the Father and the Son are one, then the world will know that Jesus is the real deal. Why? Because it's what people are longing for. Yeah? People are longing for true love and acceptance, true intimate relationship. They're longing for healthiness in their family and in their relationships. They're they're longing for reconciliation. And what has Jesus actually done at the cross? He paid for it. And when a church would walk in that reality, walk in the truth that we are reconciled, and live it out and love one another and serve one another and give to one another, Jesus said the world will go, I don't know how you guys figured that out, but we want that. Right? Because we could raise the dead and they'll be like, shoot, I think he might be real. But if you can love somebody who's completely different from you or who's even wronged you, right? Jews and Gentiles hated each other and then reconciled, absolute miracle of God. Amen? I mean, I believe in the supernatural power of God to bring healing, physical bodies, all that. But come on. Is there any greater miracle than that this guy right up here is changed by the love of Jesus so that I actually love like he loves? There's nothing more supernatural than that. The healing and the reconciliation of relationships when a selfish person begins to love? It's huge. And that's what the Lord wants. This is his desire So the truth is that we are his family. The truth is that we belong to one another. The truth is uh, that we've been reconciled. And the call of the Lord is to walk in that, to really be a family. That's not like, you know, we're not like, oh, we're a family church, which means if you're single, you're not a part. That's just stupid, right? No, when we say we're a family, that means we're brothers and sisters, moms and dads, aunts and uncles, right? And the Lord is calling us to walk in that kind of unity. But like I said, how can you... How can you say that you're the church and you're being the church and you're walking unity if you don't even gather? Right, Hebrews chapter 10 says, do not forsake the assembling together as are some in the habit of doing. You know, that's not just physically gathering together, right? You can come to an event like this. I mean, this isn't meant to be an event. This is supposed to be a family reunion. All our different life groups meet throughout the week. And this is the larger gathering. Did you know they did that in the Bible? You know that in the New Testament, they had smaller gatherings in homes. And Paul would say, when you come together, all of you in one place. We see that in the book of Acts. They came together all in one place sometimes. And then they gathered in small groups in homes to have communion and fellowship and eat together. And it's all over the New Testament. What we're doing is exactly what they did in the New Testament. They might have done it more. Sometimes, not always. They didn't meet every day in every place. Sometimes they did it in, like, in the Jerusalem church. But they would meet frequently throughout the week, gather, hang out with one another, and then they would come together corporately. That's what we're doing here. But you could come to an event and never connect with the body of Christ, amen? Like I said, you can watch the preacher guy on TV, but never connect with the body of Christ. And praise God for the preachers on TV, get the word of God into our hearts, but that's not fellowship. That's not partnering together to be a family on mission. That's not what it means to be ecclesia. We've got to gather But we do things to distance ourselves from the body of Christ, don't we? Well, you know, the church needs to do this, and the church needs to do that, right? The church doesn't do that enough, and the church doesn't do this enough. 
Who are you talking about? Bear with one another in love. Forgiving as we were forgiven in Christ. Right? Pursuing reconciliation when we've been hurt. So that we can be the church. See, if we're one, if we're really a family, then all of those other things don't matter as much as being a family. In fact, even if there's a deficiency in, quote-unquote, the church, like we're not where we should be, which there's always areas for us to grow. The moment we say the church doesn't do that, you've now distanced yourself from that, and you're now saying, I do it, but they don't. Well, but I do, brother. I used to be like that, but now I'm not. Yeah, you used to. That's the point. Only by the grace of God have you been changed, by the love of God. So even to say, like, oh, I don't do that anymore. They're like that. I'm not like that. The church is like that, but I'm not like that. You're still distancing yourself instead of actually being a part of the solution, et cetera, et cetera. I want to show you one more verse in Romans 12, and then we'll wrap up. Nine and ten. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love, in honor, giving preference to one another. And he goes on. Let me tell you, what does it look like for us to be a family on mission? I want to encourage you to meditate on Romans 12. Read it. But I just want to point out one verse in verse 10. Notice that it says, Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love. Brotherly love. You know, what's interesting about that first word, be kindly affectionate. It's actually referring to family loyalty or affection. Very, very specific Greek word. It's referring to the kind of loyalty that families give to one another. Ironic that then he sets another word next to it, referring very specifically to a brotherly or friendly kind of love. Not to be in any way diminished from like agape. You know, some people say, oh, brotherly love is less than agape love. No, 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 it's just an extension of that. But think about it this way. Let me read it to you this way. To give brotherly love to one another with the kind of affection and loyalties that families show. Now, some of you came from broken homes, so don't necessarily put it in that category. I'm talking about what Paul is referring to here. He's saying exactly what I've been saying today, that we are to love one another like brothers and sisters with the kind of affection and loyalty we feel towards our family. Some of you have brothers or sisters where they're like your best friends. Some of you are single kids or whatever, but... Some of you know what I'm talking about, where you don't have to try to love your sibling, do you? Well, I mean, but they're my blood. So is the church. Sometimes we actually love our family just simply because they're like us, and then that one family member is not like you, you don't really connect with. That's not the Lord. Do you, what, here, here's what I'm trying to say. Romans 12, verse 10. It's a choice. It's a command in the Bible to literally show the kind of loyalty that I would to a biological brother or sister as I do 
to church. Why? Because we really are the family. To actually cultivate in my heart affection. I don't mean like physical affection. I don't mean like feminine affection. I mean where you want to be with that person. You like them. And then he goes on to say in honor, giving preference to one another. How do you cultivate that? I know no other way than just being together. But other little ways too. He says pursue hospitality. That means to invite people over to your house or invite them out to eat. Especially with those who aren't like you, strangers, just different from you. Or where it says giving honor to one another. You know how you cultivate affection for another person? When, when I'm having a meal with Sean and I make his meal first and I give it to him. You know what you're doing? It's literally an act of humility and putting him first. You know those little things change your own heart? Inviting someone over, paying for their meal, go, letting them go first in line or making their meal. Or what about instead of judging one another in our home groups and in our gatherings, prophesying over one another or speaking words of honor to literally say, this is what I love about you. This is what I appreciate about you. This is who you are in Christ. Giving words of honor or acts of honor, doing acts of hospitality or service. It also talks about sharing with each other's needs. Later, Romans 12, it says, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Why? Because you're family. So if they're going through something tough, It's not like we do a depression party, but if they're going through something tough, what you do is you care as much about their struggle as you would about your own. You pray for them with as much zeal as you would pray for your own need, right? And when they're rejoicing, instead of envy, why did God do it in their life? And comparing, you actually say, praise God, you got what God said he'd do for you, and he's going to do it in my life too, we rejoice with those who we rejoice. We, we weep with those who weep. We share with their needs. We pursue hospitality. We give them honor. Romans 12, this is how to cultivate what? Affection and loyalty to one another as a family, brotherly love. So this is what I want to challenge you, and Luke, come on up. I want to challenge you to pursue this and to press into this. I want to challenge you to meditate on this and ask God, if we really are a family, how do we walk that out? If we really are a family, then what does that look like? If we really are one, God, show us how to walk in oneness. I want to challenge you. Don't just gather physically, although that's, man, we we can't cultivate unity if we don't gather physically. But I'm challenging you even, break down the emotional, spiritual barriers that would keep you at a distance from other brothers and sisters. And don't expect just other people to invite you over. It doesn't say, and wait for somebody to show you hospitality. It says, pursue hospitality. You be the one to reach out. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's respond. Amen. How's everybody's toes? They sore? Because David's stepping on your toes. Get it? Oh, man. Gosh. Everybody is just, everybody ready? Is everybody at lunch already? Is that where everybody went? Charlie, why don't you come on up here? I want to introduce you guys to a member of our family. Uh, this is Charlie. Everybody say what's up, Charlie. Yeah. Hey, so, uh, Charlie, tell us a few months ago or a few months back what, uh, what, 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 what the doctor say to you a few, a few months back. Originally, 2010, I was diagnosed with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, which is cancer of the lymph nodes. And that from there, it went to every, every vital, every major organ in my body. 
I, I ended up with, uh, with, with, two, with two large tumors in my abdomen, one behind the, the uh, pancreas and one right next to my left kidney. So I was in pretty bad shape. It was also in my bone marrow. I became diabetic. Because of it, I had to give myself insulin twice a day because my pancreas was affected so bad that I couldn't produce the hormones in which to control the sugar. And uh, at first, it was the non-Hodgkin's lymphoma is one of the uh, most common cancers and probably the easiest zeros to cure. At first, it was, it was all right, but then it got pretty scary. And I, I went from going to outpatient chemotherapy, which uh, they hooked me up at 9 o'clock in the morning. I'm done by 4, 4.30 in the afternoon. I do it every three weeks. It went from that to being admitted into the hospital and having chemotherapy for 72 hours straight every three weeks. It was the most aggressive chemotherapy possible that could be done on a human being. What they told me when I, when I went, the first time I was admitted in the hospital, is they told they, they finally, it took nine days just to get a PET scan. A PET scan is where they, they put radioactive insulin into you, then it hooks up to everything and shows where all the cancer is. When they came into my room, they told me exactly this. We're going to do the most aggressive chemotherapy possible on a human being, on you. If that doesn't work, we're going to try a bone marrow transplant. If that doesn't work, you better count your blessings. I'm here today to say... Not only am I blessed, but I've been cured. Through, through, through the prayers and my faith and the fact that I'm, not, I'm a fighter, and I, 